This is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. We are in season two, and uh, I'm here today in Detroit with a group of uh, friends, with uh, David and Larry here from Life Builders, which, uh, which I, th- I thought listeners might want to want to hear this interview um, or hear hear about this. Uh, you know, the Kick Aspirational Podcast is about breaking through barriers in your own life and uh, and you know figuring out how to move forward, how to progress. And Life Builders isn't just about, uh, uh, you know, a, a person or, or a, a team, but it's about a whole community transforming itself. So with that, uh, David, Larry, welcome. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Thank you for coming. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, um, you know, we've, I've heard about Life Builders for a while. Um, I've, we've donated uh, here and there, and uh, now we're a, a, an owner uh, Sarah and I bought one of your hey, homes. Yeah. Thank you. A yes. partner, Dave. A partner. Yeah, a partner. Yeah. Official yeah, partner. Yeah, a partner, we, an investor, a partner. Um, and uh, it's great to be back in Detroit. I was born in Gross Point uh, many years ago, <laughs> 50 years ago. Only lived here, I think, for a few months. But uh, it's it's actually cool to see where it all started, where the team Vanderveen started. So um, <laughs> anyways, great, great to be here. Tell me... Um, Walk us through, uh, Dave. We've known each other since college. We went to Wheaton together. Larry, I, I met you when I was in Wheaton. You did. Yeah, I think we you stayed at your house. Way back from Florida. That's right. We stayed at your West. home, you right? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Yes. I don't know if we stayed there, but we <laughs> stayed and saw you. Yeah. Um, but uh, and we've we've obviously been been friends through the, all the years since then. Thirty years. Thirty yeah. plus years, Dave. Yeah. Um, so tell me. Tell me a little bit about uh, how Life Builders got started. Why Life Builders? What you're doing in Detroit? And uh, and you know, let's let's start with where, where where it all began. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned Gross Point a minute ago. Yeah. <clears throat> because you may recall a little bit of the history, is that we were living in Gross Point when after we had just sort of birthed this idea because our heart was broken for Detroit communities that were under resourced. Right. And we were in a position in our life where we could devote ourselves to something and pour our life into it and give ourselves away to something. Who's, who's we? My, my, my wife, Marilyn, and I. Yes. yes so. <laughs> and it's interesting. All along, Dave, every step, and many of them were significant for us, we were in total agreement with every step, including the one that I was just going to share with you. Okay. After we started the work, just having youth and senior programs here in the community, and did our first house or two, we decided that the only way we were going to have real impact is we were going to have to move from the comfort of our Growth Point home, and we were going to have to move into the community. And, and what's your background there? You were, you haven't always been in community development. How, are, you, are you from Detroit? No, I'm originally from uh, a little town across the river from St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, wow. But I really consider myself a uh, Detroiter or Michigander because I moved here in 1975. So okay. So and what did you move here to do in 75? I was in the computer business. Okay. I was involved in large in 75. That was very early stages of that computers. was very early stages with a lot of the big iron that uh, yeah. you, you read about in all the ancient textbooks. Were you selling now. IBMs or what were you selling? Oh yes. Yeah. Well, it was the water marketing and leasing them and etc. Yeah. And then in 1978, we uh, started my own business, which was a computer sales and leasing business. And we were in the right place at the right time. And um, uh, our largest competitor, they were a $3 billion company at the time, they wanted what we had here in Detroit. We had control over most of the major accounts here. So we were faced with 
build this model out that we had in this business or sell it to someone else to, to let them take it forward. So we sold out and essentially retired in our early 40s. And that's when I had met you probably a little bit, a little bit right after then. that. I mean, yeah. we literally, we, they had just sold, I mean, it was 90. I mean, so you were right. just in the process of closing that deal and you were right. down in Tampa. Mm -hmm. Right, okay. So that was around that time. So you you had retired, and you were you were living in Florida when I when I met yes. you when we were in college yes. in the late '80s, yes. early yeah, 1990. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, and why did you decide to come back to, to to Michigan, or did you always have a place in Michigan and a place in Florida? We had both. We okay. had a place in Bloomfield Hills, and then a place down in uh, Florida. Okay. And then, what what kind of got you out of retirement? I mean, you're in a good place. You're probably doing the things you're enjoying to, doing at that point in your life. What kind of moved you to to say, you know, maybe I need to get, get into buying, you know, burned out. No, no, I shouldn't say that. This, you know, some of the houses are pretty, pretty beat up that you buy and rehab. But how how did you get to this point where you went from living in Gross Point, which is a very nice neighborhood here in here in Detroit, to saying, you know, we need to we need to shift gears and, and invest our lives in somebody else? Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know, everybody tells stories about like they have an epiphany in their life and they. Yeah. look at their life and say, you know what, I've, maybe I have 25 or 30 years left, what am I going to do with it? Mm. What people begin to think about their legacy and, and you know, we're... You were worried about Dave. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, once we got past worrying about Sam and Max's education, it was easy for us to start thinking about giving Those away... Those are Dave's kids. Those are your grandkids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yes, yeah. yeah, so... Um, um, we decided that we just wanted to make a difference somewhere. We weren't looking to, you know, make a name for ourselves because when we came here and started our work here, Dave, we uh, we had no intention of it being any more than this little building here, and we were just going to have Bible studies and encourage people and and just be a blessing to people in the community because in under-resourced communities, people don't have anywhere to go. There's nothing available to them of any quality. Right and it's um, we decided we wanted to step in and fill some gaps. Sure. So the so the first step was had had you moved into this neighborhood or were you just you bought a, a community building first? We bought the community building first, and we thought that we could have an impact and we could fully understand the community and yep. community development from a distance. After three years, we realized, and we both felt led at the same time. We're never going to really have any impact unless we move in and really understand fully by being there what it's like to live in poverty. What are some of the concerns people have? How how do they exist? What are what's the mindset? You know, sure. So so that's why that's that's the reason why we moved. You have to get inside of it in order you to really to help, help break the chain and, and solve the puzzle. Yes. Did um. So you you moved into this neighborhood, and just so people understand the neighborhood, I mean today the the, the areas where Life Builders is involved um, are effectively brick bungalows, like probably post-war brick bungalows. Is that a good description? Yeah, yeah, they they are, and they are. Um, that's about half of the community that we serve are those brick bungalows. So they're small. How how big? Are, like what's the about square footage of those? Nine hundred eighty. Nine hundred eighty square foot. Between nine hundred and a thousand square feet. Yeah. So these are like post World War Two people. You know. GI Bill. GI uh, Bill. Housing. Yeah. It's all. I mean, it's exactly what it was. And at the time, this was uh, historically they called it Copper Canyon because everyone here lived, had a badge because okay. it was the, it was police, firemen, municipal employees that basically had to live in the city of Detroit, 
And so what this was up until literally the mid to late 90s was a really nice working class, middle class, blue collar slash perfume neighborhood. I mean, it was it was really nice. I mean, up in I mean, when I was all through high school, it was still a very nice neighborhood. And then at one point, you know, one thing led to another in the late 90s and there was the recession and, and it all sort of spun really quickly. So the the brick bungalows and then the sort of shotgun shacks that were in this community are not what they were yeah 20 even 20 years ago and i noticed there's some gaps in the in the neighborhood and and those were were buildings that were vacant and needed to be taken down we called those vacant open and dangerous buildings they were not uh, restorable so we advocated you know with uh, various city agencies etc to get those buildings torn down sure you know it's funny because the the last time well not the last time but uh, probably early 2000s, Dave. You had yeah. you invited me to come downtown, and we stayed at, down at the at the Book, yeah. which is a Westin hotel, n- nice hotel. But it was kind of the only thing downtown at the time. It was. It wasn't kind of the only thing downtown. It, it yeah. It, it, it looked like a bomb went off. Yeah. I mean, it was like a very apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. Is probably the best description I I, I can have mm-hmm. of these big old structures. I mean, literally the first Batman movie movie was filmed <laughs> in one of them yeah. that were completely vacated. And you know now I'm I'm back down here and we're staying at the Shinola Hotel, which is an amazing place. Um, there's all there's just this. It's like Brooklyn in a way. I mean, maybe behind Brooklyn, but it's there's this bir- new birth, new energy in the city that's really obvious, and the values are incredible. I mean, it's compared to Chicago or uh, I don't know, pick your favorite Midwestern city. The the You've got all these structures that that are being re- renovated that are gorgeous, but the pricing is probably a third of what you'd pay mm-hmm. in a lot of other mm-hmm. places. A half to a third is that right? Forty yeah. percent off. I, mean, I yeah. would say that. Oh. Um, so you guys, so you decided. So when did you, Larry? How long ago did you actually move into this neighborhood? Then we moved into the neighborhood two thousand and nine. Okay. At the time we moved in. I always say that this is a perfect storm hit Detroit. Right. You know, with all the things that David had just described, then you, you know, on top of that, we speak about... The the, 2008. You speak about the economic collapse that occurred here. Yeah. And along with that, you have the political corruption that occurred. A population went from 1.7 million in the late, like, 80s down to less than 700,000 last year. Wow. So... It's about a third. So when we moved here, Dave, um, this was known as Detroit's most dangerous zip code. Wow. And uh, we moved right down the street here. Um, <laughs> and it was very, it was more difficult than we thought moving in. It was, I mean, really moved into a different cultural context altogether. Yeah. I mean, people are walking at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning down the street, talking on their phones, going to the bus stop. I mean, why are they fire doing, all night. Yeah, what's, what's, why are people out at 3 in the morning? Uh, people are in different hours, you know. It's just everything, everything is just very different. People are out early in the morning, for example. Public transportation was the way people got back and forth to work. And sometimes I know of people in our community, they'd take a bus two and a half hours each way to get not much more than a minimum wage job. It's very sad. Wow. But that's what we saw when we first came here. See, they've got long commutes. Exactly. I mean, the long commute is really only 10 miles. But by the time you get a bus, get a transfer, get a bu- I mean, it. Yeah. it's not like you're going to Flint or to Lansing. Right. But you're going to the other side of Detroit. 
and it's 10 miles away, and it still takes you two and a half hours to get here because of just the public transportation system. Mm -hmm. Sure, here. sure. And tell me a little bit about the corruption. So what was the corruption that occurred here? There was a whole scandal with uh, uh, Kwame Kirkpatrick, you know, when he was eventually thrown in for extortion and all kinds of other things. He's for, still in jail? For 25 years, he still has 22 to go. Yeah. And that's when uh, we, didn't we reelect our first white mayor then, uh, Mayor just, Duggan? Did, just a couple of years ago. Just yeah. a couple of years ago, yeah. He's on his second term now. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so the demographics have changed in Detroit. Mm -hmm. Is that part of that process? Uh, the downtown, we're seeing a lot of... Uh, uh, white males and females coming down to, you know, work in some of the higher tech jobs. But overall, the demographics in the city is still 90, 95% African-American, I would say. So why did, I mean, typically as voting blocks, um, a lot of African-Americans will typically vote for other African-Americans. Mm -hmm. Why do you think in a voting block that's predominantly African-American, did they elect a non-African-American? You know, David may have his own opinion. I think that the, um, uh, the residents of Detroit finally had just had enough and they were willing to try almost anything to see if we could bring this city back. And they felt that changing the, the color well, of the mayor to, was going to change I, something? I think it has more to do with the fact he was a very capable executive that was running. So, you know, so he almost he ran independent of color. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I oh, think yeah. he did. I mean, it was not, I, I mean, it, 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 there was a small faction that attacked him for being, you know, saying, you know, a white man should not be mayor of Detroit. But it was more of a, the, he got elected because people liked his ideas, people liked what he was doing and those sorts of things. It, it was much more, he, he, you know, it was sort of the incorruptible yeah. person, you know. Uh, well, it's kind of interesting. I mean, bringing, Jimmy I, Carter after Richard Nixon. Yeah, yeah, you know? sure. I mean, sure. I, I think it's that more than anything to do with race. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's kind of interesting talking about race because... Larry Marilyn, I mean, people on the radio or on the listening podcast can't see you, but but you're very white, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and you're you know you're you're very up upper middle class or you know well to do, and so when you're moving into a neighborhood like this, um, when I was young, we lived in you know uh, in Baltimore and D.C., where you know white wasn't the normal skin color. When you're moving into a neighborhood like this, was your was your race um, something that people noticed or commented on, or, or how, did, how did that affect moving in here? That's a great question. Um, it caused us some, um, it was an obstacle, it was an impediment mm -hmm. to uh, to begin with as it relates to the work that we came here to do. Right. Uh, as we, uh, the more time we spent here, people would actually, as it became a little more transparent, they would say, when you first came here, we wondered what your gig was, what you were up to. Right. You know, we were very suspicious of you. Because you're not one of them, right? This is tribal. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was a guy who lives on the street on Carlisle after eight years. We were eight years working. He calls me up on the phone one day and he says, Mr. Larry. I said, oh, hi, Carlos. He said, um, I'm ready to get involved now. And I'm thinking, eight years yeah. before he was ready to trust that were for real. Sure. Well, I, I mean, look, it, it, whether you're in Gross Point, mm -hmm. there's a tribe there, or whether you're yeah. in Indian uh, Village, which yeah. is another neighborhood here, mm -hmm. there's a tribe there, or whether you're in Regent Park, which is where we're sitting right now, there's a tribe here. When somebody who's not like you, not from your culture, moves into the neighborhood, into your village, effectively, right. it raises a lot of questions. Yes. Why would you do this, mm -hmm. right? What are you up to? This mm -hmm. doesn't make sense. Right. What's in it for you? Right. And when you've got 
two people who, you know, basically you and Marilyn had have everything. You don't didn't need to do this, right? Had any, <laughs> it just begs like, what the heck's going on, right? Um, and whatever answer you're giving, especially if it's well, we're doing this selflessly, or we want to help transform things here. We, you know, we we, we want to put meaning into this mm-hmm. meaninglessness that mm-hmm. we see. Mm-hmm. Those answers don't always make sense to people. That's right. Especially if you're in grinding poverty, living hand to mouth, and why would somebody do that? Particularly if that's not how you're thinking or how you're kind mm-hmm. of right. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about that a little bit? Oh wow. Gosh, I can think back to some of the early conversations we had uh, with people. Um, Particularly, let me just share this with you. You know, as our rental portfolio increased here in the community, um, you know, to begin with, we collected all the rent. And one of the things we talk about when we talk about our ministry here in the community, it's about restoring dignity and bringing hope in the community. Right. Well, part of this whole dignity thing is uh, people are very proud when they can pay their rent. Right. And as as we got closer to people in the community through events we had, through them seeing us more, beginning to rehab homes, etc., they made a particular point that they wouldn't pay their rent to anybody but us. I can mm-hmm. recall coming to meetings up here, and we'd have like a preacher in on a on a Sunday night or whatever, and we'd walk home with four or five thousand dollars in our pocket <laughs> because everybody would walk up to us and say, "Here, Mr. Larry, or here, Miss Marilyn," and they would stuff all this in. And Marilyn and I would get home and we put all this money on it. Say, Can you remember who gave what? Who, who did this? And did you get so and so's? I mean, it was just, and I couldn't, I couldn't understand for a while why that was so important. It could have given it to somebody else. But it was very important that that they uh, that we knew that they were able to do it, and they wanted to show that to us. They wanted to have that personal transaction. Exactly right. Yeah, that's interesting. And did um, do you think? I mean, obviously, you get to a point where do you think? I'm sorry to pull it back to this, but do you think it's kind of moved past race here in Detroit? No. Okay. I, I, I don't. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's certainly moving in the right direction. Um, and it's certainly different, I think, than it was even 15 years ago when I lived, last lived here. Yeah. But, you know, it, those, it's those just lines a post-racial gonna... society, yeah. right? I mean, it, it, it isn't. And it is still, you know, and I, I think even... Especially with the deep roots you have here. I, I think like, um, you know, when I think of like where we live in Orange County yeah. or L.A., you know, it, it gets a little bit more post-race, mm-hmm. mainly because people move there from someplace. Right. So when you don't have, like, a deep-rooted tribe, it's mm-hmm. easy to move in someplace and not focus on those things. I think when, you know, where you lived, especially here in Detroit, right, for a while you could probably only get a mortgage based on a, an area, based on your race, based on oh, who you were, yeah. right? There are red line, red line districts with all throughout the city where, you know, you would not get a bank would not loan to somebody who was African-American in this neighborhood. I mean, you couldn't right. get a mortgage. And there were, there were restrictive covenants on the sale of properties. That you, right. that's, I mean, that, and that, that was, I'm, I'm talking the 70s, Dave. Yeah. That, that was not the 30s or the, you know, that's the oh, 70s. Of course. Yeah, I mean, you know, we did this yeah. same God movie with Larisha mm-hmm. Hawkins in, in Oklahoma City in the 70s, yeah. and I think even into the 80s, they still had those racial covenants where you can only get mortgages in certain areas, which yeah. meant you can only go to certain schools, which meant, you know, it just, it all kind of ties together. Mm-hmm. So, so, so it's fascinating. So you, 
Larry, so you and Marilyn came here, and did you start, how many homes did you buy, or what was the what was the commitment to this area that you made? You started with this building that we're sitting in that was a former yoga studio. Mm-hmm. That's a one-story flat roof, very standard. It's, it's very clean, very bright. Mm-hmm. It's very very nice, actually. We're sitting in a nice boardroom. But it was, um, this is what you would expect if you're walking to a nonprofit office, a good nonprofit. I mean, it's clean, it's well-lit, it's uh, well-organized. Looks like the real deal. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but how many homes in this area, how many blocks does it encompass? Give people a little snapshot of what, what you dove into. You know, you might know the specifics, but I just remember that there are, what, over 3,000 homes? Yes. Here? I mean, at one point there was 4,000. It's, it's basically a square mile. The Regent okay. Park is a square mile. It goes, you know, people probably have heard of 8 Mile. Um, and so 8 Mile abuts the northern end of it. So between 8 Mile and 7 Mile, and then two streets, you know, a mile apart. So it's a square mile. And in the square mile, there was at one point about 12,000 people who lived in here. Okay. And, you know, it is, it was, there's there's 4,000 houses okay. in, in this community. Now, I think that number is closer to 2,200, 2,400. Wow. So um, half of, the, the bottom half of the community has been decimated. Right. I mean, it's really decimated. So as, as we were driving around, the buildings that have really endured are the brick bungalows because yeah. brick holds up better, right? Mm-hmm. And the wood frame, the, a lot of those have been either torched or burned, you know, or, or, or yeah. scraped. Um, and so how many people still live in this area? Roughly, do you know? It's eight, eight, thousand. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what was twelve thousand at the yeah at about its peak. that correct? So it's down by about a third or so, mm-hmm. um, which is Only which in is a lot. Recent years, we're beginning to see people now move back in, and part of the reason is, as you were alluding to earlier, the high rents downtown right are actually causing some people to move, to move from downtown out here because they might have a family member that's living here, and they're telling them that this is a good, safe place. To move here, and if you want to move into a Detroit neighborhood, so we're we've seen a number of people that have moved in here from downtown. And how many? You have a combination of apartments and and homes. How many doors effectively does Life Builders have? Well, between Life Builders and Life Builders Managed, we so you know. Well, let's say between Larry Maryland Life Builders, the well, whole program. The whole yeah. program. I mean, there's probably about 62, 63 units right now, um, and but that goes up and down depending on what it is. There's there's 16. Multi-family units, and then there's probably another 40 houses, so 56. And you sort of focused on this, this, the few square blocks mm-hmm. around where this office is, right? Where most of your home purchasing and the, yeah. and the brick bungalows is. Mm-hmm. Well, and the reason we did that is because when we moved in here, you know, we noticed that one block from us right around the corner, it was devastated. This cancer, if you will, from the southwest part of the neighborhood had moved all the way up here. And the kids that were in our program were having to walk by all this devastation. You know, in, in these vacant, open, and dangerous properties, you know, are hideouts for all kinds of things, right. which was were occurring in the neighborhood at the time. So you have drug dealing and... Gun sales, gun drug sale. dealing, prostitution, I mean, you name it. Okay. So Marilyn and I said, well, we aren't going to be able to necessarily rely on somebody else to do that part of what needs to be done in a neighborhood. So we took over the next mm, five years, probably three-quarters of a million dollars of our own money, and we did. You started uh, buying houses. We started buying them. houses, and we it was trial and error thing. We had, I am not handy at all, yeah. so we had to get volunteers and other people to come help do that. 
And, you know, one by one, then we picked up a little traction and then a little interest in the quality we're doing. People were hearing what we were doing. And then before you know it, other people come along and help. And it was, um, so that's really very much how it happened. How many houses can you buy with three quarters of a million dollars? In, uh, in Laguna Beach, you can't buy one. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the early houses we bought, we'd buy for 2500 or, you know, $5,000. And then wow. in those early days, probably put 25 yeah. 35 in to get them rent ready right because they're stripped out I mean there's, there's no nothing. furnace there's no wire there's no even. there's I mean in many cases there were nothing in and then uh, Dave one of the things we learned early on we learned about squatters mm. you know you'd take possession of a property through a tax sale and you'd be all excited about going and uh, taking possession of your property the next day and you'd show up and there'd be somebody living in the house right and the laws allowed somebody who came in and they were actually living in the house it took 90 days to get them out of the house that you legally owned to evict effectively yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you would you would buy it. You'd have to go through the eviction process, and then you'd be able to start taking possession, cleaning it up, and getting a, a healthier renter yeah. program together. So, f- so many funny stories along the way. Is sometimes later on later on in this whole process, we would actually go to a house that we bought at auction. The owner would come to the house. And he would open the door and say, oh, Larry. I said, I had a hunch you'd probably buy this house. He said, how much time do I have before I have to get out? Oh, <laughs> See, that's that funny. So they, it's, I mean, that's, so the funny thing is, is it's, this is a community. These, oh, yes. So a lot of these people are going to stay in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, they may be squatting in your house now, but you're going to hopefully work with them down the road. Hopefully they'll join some of your programs or well, That's a, that's or a rent great observation. Yeah. The one guy down here on Eastburn, you know, the, the day that I came into his house, we took possession. Uh, three days later, he pulled his truck up, put the few things he had from the house in, and he moved and was squatting three blocks over. So I still see him in the neighborhood. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Good so, observation. Yeah, yeah, no, so it's, I, I guess, but I guess part of the, the point of all this is you're really trying to rebuild a community with, with the community side by side. Yes. And so being an aggressive evictor or yelling you know there's no room for that this isn't a slumlord business this is about helping people build rebuild this thing brick by brick exactly they're rebuilding their lives and they really do feel a sense of dignity when they're dealing with us and they're in relationship with us the quality of our housing compared to others you know and you use the term slum landlord there's still a lot of those kinds of properties around the community which we're trying to dig out and get rid of those landlords uh, Dave, I can't even begin to tell you. It would, it would really, it would make you cry. I right. can just thinking about, just thinking about some of the properties we saw. I'm just overwhelmed that somebody could expect somebody to live, to live in those conditions and I mean, and pay them for the right to do it. Yeah, exactly right. right. Yeah. Well, it, and then yeah. very coldly, being a, a week late for a rent, intimidate them, you know, to get out of their house. And there, you'd see their stuff out on the curb and whatever. How can I, I? The thing that always raised in my heart was, how can man do this to man? Right. It's like beyond comprehension. Right. Well, I think it starts with the f- different premise, right? When you oh. moved in here, you moved in with this idea. I know you guys pretty well. You're, yeah. You come from a strong Christian tradition. Um, you come in saying, "Hey, we're all children of God. There's a there's a baseline for how we treat each other." Yes. And you're coming in saying. I I want to invest in this community because I think you're all people, 
Yes. And I think we're all in this together. Yes. And we got to figure this out because Amen. no one should be living like Amen. this. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And where other people might be saying, hey, I'm, I'm just trying to get by. I'm trying to figure out how I can make it work. Yeah. They don't see creation of wealth. They mm. don't have an idea about abundance or, right. you know, growth or progression. Mm. For them, it's how do I take from somebody else to make my world work? Yeah, that's right. And I think that's where, to, to me, when I see what you've done here, you know, you've come in with this whole different philosophy about how the world works mm-hmm. because of the metaphysics, because of what you believe mm-hmm. about how it was created, where we come from, right. and, and where it all ties back into. And so when you're bringing all that in, for us, like I was raised that way too, when, when you start there, you see the world very differently yes. than if you're, you start here where mm-hmm. maybe you don't know how you're going to make rent, you can barely buy food, mm-hmm. somebody's screaming at you to get yeah. your, you know, your, your mm-hmm. shit out of the house yeah. if you don't pay yeah. rent, right. and, and they're willing to throw it out if you don't pay rent yes. because they don't care about you. Right, that's right. Um, how have you seen people, uh, have, have you seen people change their perspective or change their philosophy or change their their kind of their outlook on life from kind of that grinding poverty um living hand to mouth living kind of from a zero-sum perspective have you seen people move to a more of a creation of wealth or abundant you know kind of lifestyle that's a good question again um i see it in a couple ways here in the community i see people with better jobs we see Far more cars in the community than we've seen, you know, in the past. Uh, I mean, when you st- when you first lived here, like most of the people that you worked with didn't have cars. I mean, that's why they had to take two and a half hour buses ten miles right. away because they had no other means of transportation. So and a this car is, is a tra- very transformational tool yeah. for somebody here. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. Especially with I mean, it's really cold today. It's yeah. in the teens. Yeah. yeah. It's freezing out there to have to wait at a bus stop or you know, wait at a transfer point. That's mm-hmm. that's a yeah. Actually, right right in front of the building, I don't know if you noticed, there's a bus stop right in front of the building, and we actually paid to have the cement ripped up, the, the sidewalk ripped up, put all new cement slab down, and put a bus, put a, there was there was just a bench, and so we put a bus stop there, so the people, so, like a we, covering, we'd have to watch, we'd watch people, I mean, there used to be a resale shop right next door, and we would, my mom would come out, Marilyn would come out, with coffee or with hot chocolate and just give it to people waiting at the bus because, I mean, it was 10 degrees and they'd be waiting for an hour and a half for a bus because the buses didn't run on time, wow. you know? And so we just decided, hey, you know what, we're going to spend whatever it was to create a new covering and to do, give. To, to demonstrate that you care about people. Right. Yeah, yeah, we got no return on that, right? I mean, that, right. <laughs> you know, it was. Well, I, the, the return you get, I think, is that people notice that you care. Fair enough. Right. Yep. Um, I think, too, that the thing that we were dealing with you know, for so many years, is the public service system, bus transportation, you know, was so bad uh, that that's why many times people, you know, would sit here for an hour. The buses, none of the buses ran on time. Um, I mean, and it created havoc for some of the young kids that we had in our job training program here for years. You know, I would get so frustrated. I would say to um, Marvante, well, Marvante, uh, how come you're an hour late? I said, you know, you can't have that in a job, you know, and I would start to get angry in those yeah. early days. He said, Mr. Larry, I left at 6 o'clock. The bus didn't show up. It was, the bus was an hour late. I missed my transfer or whatever. And it's that whole thing of us understanding as well, getting out of our stereotypical thinking, yeah. you know, which in some ways I came into it with, like I just demonstrated with that comment. Well, how come you're not here? Right. I mean, everybody should be able to get here. Just right. get here on time. And and it's the 
you know, for, for coming from where we came from, where all our cars run, yeah. we're not worried about whether it's going to start, we have cars. Um, the idea of being late means you didn't take the extra 10 to 15 minutes to be on time, where for them to even come close, they oh, have to yeah. start hours oh, ahead yeah. of time, right. two in the morning, three in the morning. Um, and probably, I'm guessing, I'm just going, I'm guessing part of the reason people take the early morning buses like before rush hours, because then at least you know, <laughs> yeah. right? There's less, less things that can go wrong at three in the morning versus any other point in the day it can really skew. Now, when you're talking about, we're talking about public services for a minute, because I think it ties well into your question. Um, so we had very poor public lighting, street signs, uh, EMS response, and police. When we moved here, all of that was so far, it was unimaginable, considering our background, right. that, that, that people would have to deal with these situations. You never knew if you made a phone call for something, if anybody was going to actually show up. How far, unless, how, someone was, yeah. unless someone was literally hit with a bullet, yeah. you how, don't get responses. How, I mean, how, how far is Gross Point from Regent Park? It's four miles. Four miles. So we're literally four miles from... Now, Gross Point has great public services, right? If you Obviously. call about a break-in, the cops there. If you have a fire, firemen's there, right. EMS, etc. Um, so here, four miles from a very nice neighborhood, one of the best neighborhoods in, in Detroit, you have effectively no public services. Um, you, can't, you can't expect public transportation to work. You can't expect the police to show up. So you basically have to take everything into your own hands. Uh, Dave, I would just to put a little context. Certainly, ten years ago, it's when we start. You can you can call the police. I mean, it, it it's changing. Public, it's changing, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's, I, I want to make sure that yeah. you know the, the, anyone listening understands. Well, that. no, no. But so we're talking about ten, ten years yeah. ago. Oh, you right, yeah. response to exactly. But yeah. So what? So what happened was, people had no confidence at all uh, in your comment about taking things in your own hand. Yeah. That's probably good because they didn't feel that they could make a call and get anybody to do anything. Sure. So what happened when we first moved here, they would call us. Yeah. Because they began to identify that we were making some things happen. Your services. So if there was yeah. a very serious problem, if somebody, I mean, even if somebody got shot yeah. or his house was broken into, they would call me in the middle of the night and say, Mr. Larry, so-and-so, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And I, and I would always want to say, Oh God! What have I gotten myself into? Why am I getting yeah, these calls? You know, and these, are, these aren't just like our tenant, right? These yeah. aren't just people who right. live in houses that we. I mean, these are these are people. Anybody. This community, right? Yeah. This goes back. Yeah. These are just people that are in the community. They would call. You know, so when there's a Mr. Rogers documentary that that's just came out that's really popular, and and uh, one of the things that Mr. Rogers said, his mom used to say to him when there was something bad would happen, she would always say, "Look for the helpers. Be mm -hmm. a helper." And I think that's kind of what you, you brought here. Um, when I was in college, my, uh, you know, Dave and I both went to Wheaton College for a few years until they decided we were just too good for them and <laughs> encouraged us to go elsewhere. Um, and uh, <laughs> so we, I, I finished at Calvin College, and I had to take a sociology class. And so I took this 300-level social class with a former a guy who's at Wheaton now, uh, Hank, Dr. Hank Allen, Professor Hank Allen. And I did urban sociology. And I was very libertarian at the time, still fairly libertarian, but um, I did a project called uh, Private Solutions to Urban Crime because I wanted to point out, everyone says, well, if you don't have the police, if you don't have the fire department, you know, how, what, what would happen? I said, well, there's places where they don't. Mm -hmm. And effectively, you end up policing yourselves. You end up mm -hmm. figuring it out, right? Mm -hmm. And so I interviewed the, uh, 
the guardian angels and the nation of Islam, the head of the nation of Islam, head of the Chicago guardian angels. I forget the third one. But um, the interesting thing, people are saying, well, you buy extra locks. Maybe you buy a gun. Um, you know, there's all these different things you do. What are the, some of the things that, that you had to do here? Did you, for example, did you buy a gun? I did buy a gun. And I, I had even promised myself before we moved from Gross Point that I wouldn't. And we weren't here six months, and I decided, now I rationalized that I bought the gun so I could protect Maryland. Hmm. But I really bought the gun to protect both of us because there was an element of real fear, you know, and that's not supposed to be there in a calling. Yeah. But, I, but nevertheless, very practically speaking, I really felt a sense of fear where we were living, the knocks on the doors, the phone calls, having to respond to alarms sometimes down the street, whatever. It was it was a little unnerving. What did you buy? I bought a, a Glock 9mm. So it's fairly easy to shoot. Yes. And did, um, have you and Marilyn trained to use it? Uh, Marilyn would never touch it. Okay. Yeah. She liked the fact that I had it. Yeah. <laughs> she never touched it. Yeah. Do you, have you ever fired it? Uh, you mean like in the neighborhood, in the neighborhood? or anything? No, never yeah. had to. Have you ever had to pull it on somebody? No, never. And do you feel that having a gun um, helps you with managing your fear? Is that the primarily the primary reason you you have it? Well, that's a very deep question. It maybe gave me a sense of security, although I can tell you many times when you know it would be nine ten o'clock at night, and you know I'd hear noises outside or there'd be gunfire or whatever. It was hard to even imagine what I might actually do. What I actually shoot somebody if they broke in. That's very hard. I'm glad I never faced that. Or maybe just fire it in the air. If to, mm-hmm. you, you know, a lot of times when you're, as an example, if you're in bear country or places where, um, you know, you need to be concerned for your safety, the last thing you actually want to do is shoot a yeah. shoot a big bear with mm-hmm. a with a with a handgun, any mm-hmm. size handgun practically. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you fired it in the air, it will most of the times it'll make them you know, run or mm-hmm. freak them out. Mm-hmm. Just curious. It was a series of curious questions, <laughs> um, and maybe you haven't thought through all these things. But uh, it's, it's, I think it's, what's interesting is you have a lot of, like a lot of people will say, well, I would never buy a gun or I'd never have a gun until you live in a, in a place where there is, there are no police, there is no security. Mm-hmm. You are your own last resort. Now what will you do? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, Dave, when we, so we, I drove you, I drove you through Indian Village today and showed you our nice block and the wonderful house yeah. we had before when we moved. And when I had Max, when we, well, Lisa had Max, but when we had our first son in that house, you know, in that house, I, who was an anti-gun person, who has always said I would never have a gun. I mean, I seriously went through. I didn't. We moved actually to Southern California. You moved to Laguna Beach where we where we need, <laughs> don't need fewer gun. guns. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I went through the process of I'm going to get a gun. I didn't, but you know, it, it was when you realize that there is nobody to call. Right. You know, and you have somebody else. It wasn't just me, yeah. or it was just Lisa and I, who I'm pretty sure we can both, you know, handle ourselves pretty well. But when all of a sudden there was that other life, sure, that you know, helpless life involved. You know, it, it changes the and changes all of the variables. Changes how you think about process. security. Mm-hmm. When, um, how, what, what's what percentage of the population here in Regent Park carries a gun? Do you think or has a gun? Oh, I would say seventy-five percent or more have guns. So almost yeah. everybody. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you were telling me a story about a woman uh, in the neighborhood who asked you to move her car. 
Yes. Well, there was a there was a little girl walking down the street one morning. She was like three, and uh, I just happened to be out. I was going down uh, Eastburn, and I pulled my car over and I started to go over and approach her because she looked lost. And then you know one of the things that runs through your mind. I here's this here's this older white guy walking over and approaching this young girl walking. So I had this in the back of my mind, but I could also see that she was lost. Yeah, she was fearful. So I was just about to get to her. And then this woman pulls up in her car, stops in the middle of the intersection, and she starts to get out of her car. And I explained to her, I said, this little girl's been walking down the street. And I know where she came from. She, she lives down the block, down towards the end of the block. And she said, that's okay. She said, uh, I'll go talk to her and we'll get her back to her house. She said, if you would, move my car over to the side. So I get in her car and I close the door and I see right there on the seat, she's cut her Nine millimeter Glock sitting right there in the <laughs> sitting on the seat. Seating it's on not the seat, concealed. Right? No, yeah. no, right there. <laughs> sitting right, right there. That's right. Yeah, yeah. that's got to be. Well, can you imagine? I mean, a lot of things run through my head, but one of the things that would kind of, if I was a police officer in this area, you have to assume everyone that you pull over, everyone that you approach, is is loaded for bear, mm-hmm. right? Even like we were talking with a woman who I think works in some of your. Who is the Miss? Uh, who's the lady that I Ms. met Wiley. when I walked in? Miss Wiley. Miss Wiley, yes. And what, what does she do? She lives over uh, right around the corner. She takes care of her uh, kids, daughter, granddaughter, etc. She is not. She's not employed. And she's. She said she's always packing, right? She's always carrying. Oh, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. She she told me she said uh, one day she said you'll probably get a call, and the only place you'll be able to visit me is jail. She says, because I'm not going to let anybody around here intimidate me or break into my car or whatever. She said, I'm going to take care of business. Right. I said, and I believe she would. Yeah. <laughs> so it's um, that has to be going through people's minds. Just when, In any of your interactions, you just have to know that, that people have a weapon probably. I mean, it, it comes to if you're sitting at a stop sign and you honk because someone's not moving. I mean, I've had people pull guns in this city because I've honked at them. Yeah. And you you have to realize, you know, every interact every interaction and not just face to face, but you can't honk your horn because yeah. it's very well you can upset somebody and get a gun pulled. Wow. I mean, and it's just Maryland used to have people all the time walk into the resale shop and they'd have guns in their purses or guns in their pocket or whatever and uh, um, and anger anger is very abrupt here. In the neighborhood, I mean, it just happens instantly. There's more emotional outbursts. Oh yes, and if there was, so you always have to be aware of the fact that those can lead to that very quickly, and that's why when there are homicides, whatever, in our community, it's, you know, somebody's had a confrontation with a family member or and there's whatever, a gun right and, then, there. and there's a gun right there. Mm-hmm. So that that uh, gets exacerbated that, mm-hmm. that way too. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about um, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, there's a in the middle of this community where these houses are that Life Builders been, has been involved in, um, there was a school, an old school that was, was there was a park attached to it, is that right? Yes. And uh, that park, you were telling me, had two foot high weeds and grass. Um, on one of the corners, the drug dealers would hide their drugs in the grass and then pull it out to sell it, apparently. Mm-hmm. Dave, did you ever see The Wire? Uh, this is the worst answer no. to that question. Okay. I've barely watched The Wire once and didn't get into it. Okay. Um, which probably makes me a bad person, but I just, I'm like one of the few people that haven't watched The Wire, but I'm aware of this, of the, of there, the, there was, yeah. there was a, there was a, uh, one season, there was a whole, the whole, 
portion of it was about New Amsterdam, where basically the police officers turned the other way and they set a little square park where drug sales could just go. And basically what they found in the, in the show, what they saw was that the um, homicide rate and the shootings and the gang violence dissipated throughout the other neighborhoods because everything happened here. And Got it was focused sort of there. Focused there. And the only reason I say that is because this park was, was like New that. Amsterdam wow. for, for, for Regent Park. It was, I mean, it was constant activity. And, and, and so you ended up taking over the school, uh, buying the school, is that right, through a series of through yes. grants and your own, your own investment? Right. And what does that park today and that school look, what, what was the process, the project that you got into, and what is it, you know, how, where did you end up with that? Well, originally we moved in the community and started doing some housing rehabs. Uh, it was clear that we needed some public space. Yeah. And that that was a terrible eyesore and a reminder of what this neighborhood used to be when you saw that school there yeah. because that was a vibrant at full capacity elementary school in the community and when it was when it was shelved in I think it was 2003 something like that I mean it left this terrible eyesore and then it became a place where drugs were sold out of it and breaking and whatever I mean it was just terrible so we, I believed in my heart that that was going to be the epicenter of the community at some time. Yeah. So we um, we contacted the uh, Detroit Public School uh, Administration, and uh, once they developed a list of schools that they were going to close, and we started negotiating with them. It took about nine months, and in the meantime, I was you know casting vision for this with. Uh, various faith-based organizations about we need to get this school because we can do this with it and then we'll fix this park up and whatever and so the two sort of came together we got some funding to be able to buy the school even though we knew we were going to sit on it for a while and then we got neighborhood groups together whatever so we could start cutting the grass on this awful park that David was describing so we cut the grass, we tore down all the old fencing and whatever, and invested through a grant, invested about $150,000 in repurposing this park to the point where now where it's brought new life to the community. You'll see kids and families and whatever in the park, you know, during the you know season that we have here. You know, they'll be playing football. We run a flag football program on there. There's pavilions. People are having picnics out there now. You know, and uh, David, they never had a this place before. to do that. You have to have a place in you order to, to do that. There was no yeah. place. In fact, it was a negative place, yeah. right? It was full of drugs and. I remember one day in particular, and I think David will remember this. Uh, somebody yeah. called us and said that there was uh, some drug activity down near the uh, uh, near the park. So uh, we were in one of those moods that particular day when we said, you know what, let's go down there and run this guy off or beat these people off, which was, I don't know why we did that. But anyway, (laughs) we got in the car, we went down there, and uh, we ran this guy off. And we're really disgusted that uh, this activity was so evident, walking down the middle of the street and whatever. And we saw this little boy playing in the park. And his... um, uh, babysitter or mother or whatever was sitting on the bleacher benches and he was out in the park and he had this football and he was spiking the football and he had this he had this big smile on his face and we pulled over you know and everybody knows us in the community by our vehicles or whatever and he hollered over at the vehicle he said uh, 
thank you, Mr. Larry. And uh, I looked at him and said, thank you for what? And he said, thank you for doing this for us. And uh, David and I looked at each other. We had tears in our eyes. We were thinking something so basic or fundamental. You cut some grass and make a field available. And for this little boy, this meant the world to him. Yeah. And there's been so many of those kinds of things that have happened. The guys who look so bad in their cars, and you know in many cases they're up to probably no good, will roll their windows down when they see us and say, thank you for what you're doing for our kids here in this community. A couple of times I thought when the window was going down <laughs> that it was all over, that I, this was my day. Yeah. <laughs> but it was some of the most organic thank yous, the way they've just sort of happened, uh, because we have little fanfare. We just go about our work in people's lives are being transformed. And the school today, um, you said about a big chunk of it was demoed? Yeah. How much See, How much is left of that school today? About 8,000 square feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Which is what percentage of the old school? About a third. About a third of the old about school. 20, yeah. And it's been cleaned up. It looks nice. Um, uh, and you said now there's a Head Start program a Head Start that's in facility. there, yeah, so we helping young kids getting getting going. Sixty, basically, and it's it, it's it's the first of its kind, at least on the east side of Detroit. Which is, it's not typically you have like a nursery Head Start, right? Or you have like a pre-K Head Start. Have, this is basically birth to kindergarten. Oh, so wow. if, if a parent has three kids, you know, an infant, a two-year-old, and a four-year-old. Can all go there. One place. And once again, we we're talking about the transportation issues and all sorts of things. To the ability to drop kids off at one spot in the morning before you go to work or do whatever, it, it, it's trans, that's, that's transformational. Right. And so there's 60, there's 64 kids, I believe. You know, I think there's, I think there's 64 kids in the, in the Head Start facility, um, you know, that are there every day. And they, that's, that's what they're there from, you know, eight and, to five. And, and when you're trying to get, help families get out of cycles of poverty, get out of grinding poverty, those first formative years are really essential, not only for, um, you know, for, for learning, but even just basic nutrition. Mm-hmm. I mean, if kids in those age groups, we have a program with, with Amway called um, uh, Power of Five, and the whole point is that zero to five, if kids aren't getting the right nutrition, they won't get the right brain development so that they can be functional humans down mm-hmm. the road, um, let alone, you know, l- demonstrating reading, doing right. all the things that we kind of took for granted in the homes we grew up in. If you don't have that, you don't have functional mm-hmm. adults. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's, that's really powerful. I noticed there was a green light, green flashing light on the corner of the building. What was that? What's that all about? There's a program in the city of Detroit that was initiated by the mayor uh, to provide um, increasing 24-hour sort of online police coverage for what was termed as hot spots. Mm. Uh, so you will mostly find these green light, green lights at gas stations, you know, that have been known to be um, uh, sites of homicide, drug activity, that sort sure. of thing. But when we started the project here, um, and by the way, um, construction projects are difficult enough. Doing them in a high crime rate area. <laughs> yeah. um, you have to lock everything oh down. Oh my gosh. So as we were getting into this, we were thinking about, we want to make this secure for families who are dropping their kids off. 
and discourage people hanging around the building and that sort of thing. So we appealed to uh, the police department in partnership with uh, Comcast and Guardian Alarm, and we were able to get a pilot at our building. So now we have the green light, which monitors our facility 24-7. So the green light signals that it's safe, but it also signals it's being watched. It's being watched, exactly right. With high-resolution cameras that can pick out faces and that sort of thing. It's yeah. it's the real deal. Great. And, um, and so Life Builders owns the building, and you lease it to the Head Start program. Yes. Is that kind of your, what's so? What's the what's the model for Life Builders? The financial model, the sustainability model, and kind of what's your vision? Where are you headed? Well, you know, ideally, we'd like to find a lot of sustainable businesses that can operate, you know, under Life Builders umbrella, so we don't have to be, you know, so dependent upon the you know, individual whims of people, of things that they want to give it to that. You know, tug their heart, etc. That we have a model that that uh, generates cash, so we can support all the programming which we know are important. You know, for the growth of our families here in the community. Yeah. So we have a couple things so far. You know, one being the Head Start facility, uh, which is one business. The other one is our uh, rental property. So when you business. say business, it doesn't it doesn't have to be a for profit necessarily. Exactly right. It could mm-hmm. be a nonprofit like Head Start. Exactly right. Okay, mm-hmm. so so you've got Head Start in there, which is leasing the land from you. And so what is the other ones? I'm sorry. The other one is the uh, rental uh, rental business that we have, and that generates um, um, a good amount of cash so that we can pay for a maintenance and some other things related to that um, so that's your rental of your renting apartments and houses to exactly people right. and then you're maintaining them and yes. keeping them up and, mm-hmm. and, that. and it generates enough free cash to i mean if we scaled that from you know 25 up to 75 or whatever i mean it would it would uh, generate a lot of cash you know going forward but we always have to be sensitive and david i would certainly want david to comment on this there's a right balance in a revitalized community that's being restored between rental and sales. Okay. You know, as much as we could build a strong business case for us continuing to build this rental thing out, it wouldn't be good for the community. You want people to own exactly also. right. So, so yeah. they have I mean, a rising one of, tide. One of the things that uh, today they're really. If, if you're a if you're if you have a minimum wage job or a low, you know a, a just greater slightly better than minimum wage job, there is no the concept of wealth creation is un, is unattainable, right? right. The, the concept of generational wealth is you're, you're in grinding poverty. The only yeah. the only vehicle for wealth creation for someone who is at a lower middle class is homeownership. That's the only vehicle. There are no four hundred one. There are no pensions. There are no four hundred one k's. And so at that at that level of your sure. there's only one vehicle. And so it's homeownership. So we're really working. With trying to bring about homeownership in this community, not because it's necessarily the best deal for us, <laughs> it's because it's the best deal for the community, and that you know there needs to be. So you want to have a healthy mix of, of, of homeowners. It's also good for the for the values, right? When somebody owns something, they're going to typically yeah. take better care of it. Yeah. So and if yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. It also there there's a sort of an inequality of relationship as well when we're landlord and their tenant, right? It creates a little, it, right. it, it, it puts a little stress on the relationship with us and people, members of the community. It's a lot easier to be community driven 
with people who are also community, also stakeholders in the community, are also homeowners. Yeah. And it's a level playing field. Well, it's, it sounds like you've got two things that are going on. One is you had to kind of come in and buy things because otherwise it would never going to go anywhere right, right. and demonstrate con- contributing to this to the community mm-hmm. so that the community could start working with you in that mindset and that philosophy and that way of life. Um, now that you have people that are in that mindset, I mean, how many how many people work with life builders today in this community? Well, when you consider all the kids and volunteers and whatever, few hundred. Right. So now you've got a few hundred people in the community participating mm-hmm. in this whole new idea of living together in community. Mm-hmm. Um, if assuming that you have more businesses or nonprofits or something that's generating jobs and and work, as well as you know. Um, homes that people are renting and having a safe place to work from and a car that can get them where they're going, you start to see people moving up that, that economic spectrum. Uh, at that point, you can start to get to a place where you could have, even if it's a low-cost mortgage lender, you could have a way for people to buy a home and sustain themselves and be a part of the community and see the whole thing go up, right? Mm-hmm. So we have, we have, we're partnered with a few people that do home ownership classes and credit counseling to basically for people who are renters in this community, you know, people renting our properties or other properties, you know, to basically go through these classes and you get down payment assistance at the end of the class. If you, you know, you get your credit score up from, you know, sometimes it's from 480 to 600, but if you get it at 600, FHA and Fannie, Fannie and Freddie are able to lend to you and all these sorts of sure, things. Sure, sure. There's all these programs that are available, you know, and, and the biggest being down, pay, you know, down payment assistance. I mean, there are programs where you get $2,000, $5,000 for down payment if you just complete these processes. And it, it's just the, it, it's just getting. But the, it, the assumptions on that are that somebody understands how right. to go to class, that right. they have a way to get online, that, mm-hmm. right, there's a lot of things that people probably need basic help Correct. with to get to the point where they can get to a class, complete the class, mm-hmm. and get to that stage. Is that, is that right? The, the stress living in an under-resourced community and living in poverty, I never would have understood it had we not come here and got to know people intimately. And the reason I comment on that is because of what you just said. You know, David comments, well, we've got these classes and whatever for people. It's like, so what? Right. How do I get to the class. class, yeah. How do I make time when I've got two jobs, right? And my kids need this, and my kids need that, and whatever. How do I go to a class, right? How could I ever, in my mind, have a vision that I could be a homeowner? On, on the narrow band of time that I have, with no experience, maybe anyone in your family ever owning a home. Right. I mean, one, is it even believable? Two, in the in the competition for time, where you're commuting for hours, you've got two jobs, you've got kids. I mean. The idea of actually getting to that class, completing the class, and believing that you could own a home at the end, right? right. If you don't believe you can own the home, you won't go to the class anyways. Right. I mean, that's a that's a series of leaps it that is. you don't understand unless you're here. That's right. And so part of living here, Larry, I'm guessing, is you start to realize, well, having the class is great. Like, it's, having a government program is fine, mm-hmm. but if people can't access it right. because they can't figure out how to get there or do it or get online, then you... You just have you built something that's inaccessible still. I remember um, Cliff Notes version of this six years ago. We were gonna, we were having a class here, and we sent out these flyers and we used this I think this online application called Nextdoor, and it was a credit counseling class so people could get ready uh, for uh, buying a home or 
starting a business. We had some money involved, whatever that people could get. The day that we had the class on a Saturday, and it was not by bad intentions or not wanting to be there, and we paid for the instructor to be here, one person came. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. It's tough work. Mm-hmm. When, I'll give you another example. Um, so I used to work, I worked in, in a lot of in the computer industry too in the 90s. And uh, one of the things that I was heavily involved in was rolling out PC networks. And one of my clients was Kaiser Permanente. So it's a doctor organization. And the assumption was that everybody wanted a PC. Mm-hmm. And three companies had failed to roll out PCs to doctors because doctors didn't care about PCs. <laughs> They're trying to treat patients. Right. right. And you putting a device in their office that they didn't know how to use that was going to slow them down from treating patients mm-hmm. was a barrier, not a solution. Mm-hmm. And so what we had to do was actually have a trainer go to the desk when we rolled out the PC to meet and train the doctor and show them value immediately so that they would actually use it mm-hmm. and not put it out in the hallway. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's different sets of issues, but it's the same. If, if you don't know because you haven't been in that environment what the actual barriers are, you'll have all these assumptions that will keep you from being successful. Exactly and I think right. you're, you're kind of hitting the same thing. If you're not here, if you're not, if you're not, you know, if you don't have the vertical expertise of Regent Park, yeah. you can't help people in Regent Park because mm-hmm. you're not solving the same puzzle. Well, case in point too is um, our kids having an opportunity to go to college. Well, and all these scholarships are available for kids to go. Well the way that you're required now to make application means that you have to have a broadband network in your home or access to a computer that you can get on that you can make your application sometimes you need to be to have a credit card so you can pay a $25 application fee etc all these talk about the digital divide in poverty all barriers all these are barriers and so we set up this lab in the uh, Chase branch, which was donated to us and we repurposed. So we set up this little computer network in there and we um, had some of the kids stayed after one night after one of their programs and they would sit back there and do some of the things on this network that they could not do at home because they didn't have Comcast service or internet service. They didn't have it at home. All they had was a smartphone. And when kids would be given a homework assignment, from their school, all they had was a smartphone to try to do it on. Wow. I mean, look at the things we take for granted. Right. Can you imagine how easily the kid could get discouraged? Right. I used to get upset with the kids. I said, why don't you just go apply to so-and-so? Uh, well, uh, first of all, it was a bunch of excuses. Well, I didn't get to it. I didn't get to it. And finally, they would say, well, Mr. I can't get to a computer, and I don't know how to do that. And right. Well, and, that, and that's the assumption, right? Why don't you just right. the, the the just carries that whole assumption oh, in it, yes. and the the numbers of steps that we take for granted are the barriers that make it yes. impossible for mm-hmm. some of these people. Mm-hmm. Do um, when 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 you're going through this and you're you're solving some of these, what? Uh, and this is maybe it's a question that doesn't doesn't relate, but what percentage of people in your community, in Life Builders community, have bank accounts now that maybe didn't have bank accounts when you started? Was was that a big barrier? Oh my gosh! I mean, David might even have a comment on this as well. When we would hire kids to work as camp counselors or whatever else, or they would be in our job training program, 
for them to get their stipend from us for so the program, yeah. they had to open an account. They had to open an account, and not one had one. Right. I, I kind of assume that mm-hmm. we work with our business. We work in a lot of different places, and um, what you're seeing in, you know, like places like India, which is developing rapidly right now. I mean, there's parts of India that are you know world tier one cities and things, but there's a lot of it that's moving quickly. Um, most banking, same with Africa, most banking happens on a, on a mobile device. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, we were we were at driving we were driving through the the bush in Kenya, and in this little village, that every little village would have a little. It's basically a bank. Right. And the bank is you have your cell phone, and they have a cell phone, and they communicate they transfer and they to transfer your funds back yeah. and forth. And that was that phone's your bank. That yeah. your phone is your bank, and yeah. and I think part of the so what I'm getting to is you know in those countries because you know, they're leapfrogging us in a lot of ways. Here, like your phone being your bank would be a really great idea, but we don't really do that in America mm-hmm. yet. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, now we're starting to with PayPal and stuff, yeah. but it's expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, where in those markets, they didn't have the infrastructure, so they've been able to leapfrog and, and develop these things pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, we see this with some of our business uh, partners here in North America, particularly in the Hispanic uh, uh demographics where it's a lot of people have are recent immigrants um, they don't use banks they don't trust banks you know mostly they use Western Union um, to transfer money around you know um, and so it's just it's always interesting when you walk into a demographic if you don't understand how they work and live and do do business it's very hard to mm-hmm. meet them at that very first is, basic step right. I, I mean how many put it this way of the 50 tenant you know rent Payments we get every month. How many of them write checks? Not ten percent. Yeah, I was about to say five. Right. Yeah. Five people pay by check. Everyone gives you cash. I was noticing today that it, the check they got handed to you was a cashier's check, yeah. I believe. We, right. we mostly money orders, cashiers checks. Yeah. Well, that's what yeah. we get. Mm-hmm. Which could be just because people also probably have tight cash flow, so they want to make sure that that one's going to clear if it's mm-hmm. coming to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that was the, those. Are, these are the kind of things I, I read this uh, uh, hillbilly elegy. Have yes. you read this book? Mm-hmm. It's a great book about grinding poverty and and all the little things that make it really hard for people to to get out. It's a story of one guy who kind of worked his way out. Um, but even when, so this is a guy who grew up in grinding poverty. He, um, his family was from, they were effectively hillbillies, you know, people who came from, uh, from Kentucky and migrated to southern Ohio. Mm. And even though, his point was even though that they moved out of Kentucky, they still brought their culture with them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was raised by his grandparents because his mother and his, whoever his father was, which he never knew, um, you know, had a lot of drug issues. And he got to the point where he could get into college. He was accepted into college, graduated high school. But he realized if he went to college, he would fail because he didn't have the discipline. He was smart enough to realize he needed discipline, so he joined the military, mm-hmm. the Marines, for four years. Where they, when they give you a check, they tell you to go open a bank account. They tell you which bank to put it into. They tell you how much you can spend on a car. He said, I needed somebody to do that for four years mm. before I could actually have enough discipline to go get mm. through college. Mm. And then even in law school, he needed his girlfriend to tell him, hey, you can't show up to a law firm interview in khaki pants and work boots. You need to wear a suit. You know, here's the how you use a fork and spoon in a dinner meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of things that we take for granted, and and I guess I'm I'm just going through this. One of the questions I've had is, um, you know, when we go to dinner parties uh, in Laguna, half the table might you know really love Trump, half the table might really love you know um, Obama, or you know I'm just using two examples, or Hillary, you know Hillary Clinton, um, and then you get into these kind of 
uh, very bipartisan, very uh, polarizing conversations. They're kind of binary conversations. And one of the things that, that I started doing is saying, I think this is a really uninteresting co uh, conversation. I have a, here's a question, how do we build a country again? Mm. Because this isn't working. This mm. is dysfunctional, right? Mm -hmm. when, you're, when you're here, I, I guess one of the things I love seeing is that I feel like you're rebuilding a neighborhood in America. Mm -hmm. And you're doing it by crossing a boundary, crossing a barrier, crossing cultures, crossing tribes. Do you, do you think about other parts of America that need to be rebuilt? Are there ways that you could see something like this scaling into a bigger program? Or do you think it's better to keep it small and intimate and community-based? Um, about nine years ago, when we first started having some success with this, we were at a meeting and this uh, uh, doctor and his wife stood up and said, um, Larry, why don't you in Maryland take what you're doing, this model, and you should do it you know, in other Detroit neighborhoods, et cetera. I sort of laughed at him and I said, are you kidding? I said, we're just barely treading water here. It just so happens that all these things that right. we're doing are just working really well. In the past four or five years, that has been, I bet you we've been asked that question 10, 15 times on the TV appearances we've had and you know, we've been interviewed, interviewed by the news media and, and articles have been written. Um, I think I think this is in, I think that what we do here can be duplicated um, in other Detroit neighborhoods and actually any urban neighborhood. Um, and if that's what you meant by scale, yes. Could you take the model and do it somewhere else? Yes. Uh, it's very hard work and capital intensive to start with. Uh, we could probably, through the things that we've learned, help people you know, avoid some of the you know, pitfalls. And maybe by having that scale and now seeing where it's going, there might be like the National Christian Foundation that's sitting on $3 billion. Maybe they'd have an interest in making a significant dent you know, in um, urban neighborhoods you know, around the United States. I don't know. What's what's the combination that the that uniques? It's not just money, right? It's I mean capital is part of it, but you but you guys moved here. Right. That's, and you're Mr. Larry and Miss Marilyn yeah. and you're I mean, I think you need need to have a Mr. Larry and Miss Marilyn in the neighborhood mm -hmm. too, right? Yeah. You need somebody who's moving in to demonstrate abundant living, to contribute to what what's the mad what's the what's the combination or the template that you think beyond the I mean the I always like to say, you know, there's plenty of money in the world. It's hard to find great ideas and people who can execute them. What do you? What's the combination here? Um, you know, I mean, I'll look. I'll look at Larry as I say this. I mean, when they, for the three years that they were running Life Builders before they moved here, they had a handful of women that they helped out, and they had some kids because the women had kids, so they had some, and that was great. You know, and they were investing some of their money. But when they moved here, and they were like you said, they were Miss Marilyn and Mr. Larry. That's when everything changed. You, you, you can have all the money, and if you don't have, if you're not here, if you're not in the community, living day by day, eating, you know, sharing, breaking bread with your neighbors, right? It's not gonna. You, you can make a dent. You, you can make. You can help fix houses, but you're not gonna build community. And I think that's. You're that's never gonna the, get the trust. Right. It, it's it's the trust, mm -hmm. and it, that's exactly what it is. It, it's living. When they moved here, that's when every. That's when it. 
went exponentially, right? And because they were able to establish one-on-one relationships, or one in 50, depending on what it was, but your relationship yeah. with so many individual people, and not just good morning, or here's a rent check. I mean, relationships where, oh man, I can't believe this happened to Tanya, or I can't believe this happened to, you know, your mother, you know, knowing commu- it's community. And you can't be part of community if you're not in the middle of it, I sure. don't think, so. So I usually wrap up on uh, faith-based questions, and uh, I know that another part of the element of life builders that's kind of it's very important to you is is your faith. Um, how did one? I would ask, how did your faith? What what part did your faith play in getting you to even consider doing this, let alone start it, let alone moving into the neighborhood? And how does your faith take? Uh, what part of this organization is tied to faith, and how do people who maybe don't share that faith participate in it? A series of questions, we can go back over them. Right. I notice on the wall, by the way, right behind you, Larry, it says, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase, and that's a Martin Luther King quote. Mm. Junior. Boy, is that the truth, yes. Yeah. Mm. So, so what, how did faith influence you jumping into this, getting uh, to where you are today, mm. and then how, do you, how does that tie into who you work with? Well, you know, um, if you don't mind, I'll take that last question first and then circle back. Um, everybody is invited to participate. It's an open-door policy. Oh, totally open-door. We never know from one week to the next, I mean, who may show up in a youth program, a kids' club, a new family that moves in. We have absolutely no idea. All we are committed to do is uh, to share the love of Christ you know, show people what love really looks like and what Jesus meant by love by giving ourselves away, you know, to the community. And that's basically what we've done. We've just said we're giving ourselves away to a great need that we see here. And it's taken the form in our case, and it looks different in everybody's case, depending upon what's on their heart. Um, Ours was to give ourselves away to this community through Christian programming, you know, through uh, for all ages, from K through seniors, to provide high quality affordable housing so people could have some place to live. I view it sort of, Dave, like uh, bringing water to a village, you know, in Africa. You know, the, the need is so fundamental and it wasn't here. Yeah. So as we began to provide the water or parentheses house. Sure. You know, people began to see that they saw the gospel in operation. It wasn't us just sitting here in this building that we're in right now and telling people we demonstrated the gospel, you know, in the community. You started by meeting them at their need. And because of that, it gave us an opportunity to share what we believe in a very natural, organic way. We weren't preaching from any, you know, anywhere. We just could sit on the porch, you know, and basically people would get to the point and say, why do you do, why have you done this? What are you doing here? Or so you would earn my, the que- I like to say you would earn the questions, right? St. Francis said, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. That happened so many times. And that was, I think, the most effective transformation we've seen in real lives, you know, has, has simply been that. And in my case, and I'm sure Marilyn has many examples herself, 
I'm the pastor here in the community, and I don't have a theological degree yeah. or anything, but I'm the pastor for... You've, you've been ordained by the streets of Regent I Park. I have been <laughs> ordained by the streets of Regent Park. Yeah. I've done funerals. Um, I mean, and I... what A couple of them that I was asked to do, I told one lady, I remember she lost her son, who was 12 years old, and uh, she said, you're going to do his funeral. And I said, no, I'm not. She said, oh, yes, you are. <laughs> and I said, I can't do that. And she said, you're the only person who knows him. Oh, wow. You have to do it. And so then that was like the baptism of how funerals are done in poverty. <laughs> I have never experienced anything like that. And then you'd get invited to speak at this, and you'd go to this and whatever, because you, you were living now in community, and you were loved and you cared you know, for each other in very real ways. So you you had opportunity after opportunity, you know, to share what was important to you and what you believe. That's awesome. Did um, when somebody asks you why you're doing this, what do you tell them? I tell them because we were called, you know, to come and be a proclaimer, you know, of God's um, of uh, the gospel message here in the community, and it took legs with us. You know, to come and to give our lives away to something, you know, simple as that. Well, that's a uh, that's a pretty good answer. That's uh, <laughs> can't imagine a better one. We, um, yeah, we're Sarah and I have been very uh, excited to participate in Life Builders mm-hmm. to either donate or or you know we've been able to invest in one of the homes here. Um, it pays. I mean, it, it's a great investment, not only emotionally. But also financially, I mean, you've done a great job of, of managing the economics, of being a good value for the people renting, a good return for people investing, and um, I'm excited about where this is headed. And uh, I want to thank you uh, on behalf of myself and our our audience for for taking the time today. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Dave. Dave and I, I would say that we you know without David doing the work that he's done, you know, in the community with our housing component you know, we wouldn't have the program that we have here today. Well, I think there's a bright future and uh, a good path ahead and, yeah. and uh, really appreciate it. What, um, how do people look up Life Builders? What's, what's your website? It's uh, www.lifebuildersdetroit.com. Lifebuildersdetroit.com. And you can follow us on Facebook. Okay, it's and on Instagram. Facebook too. And Instagram. And Instagram. Life Builders, yeah. And um, if they want to reach out to you, what are your, what are your, your emails? Uh, L. Johnson at LifeBuildersDetroit.com. Right. I didn't say your last name, Larry Johnson. (laughs) Mr. Larry. L. Johnson at LifeBuildersDetroit.com. Great. Well, thank you very, very much, guys. Appreciate your time today. And uh, remember, Kick Aspirational listeners, this is not a spectator sport. Get involved. Tell me your stories and uh, make a difference. Most important thing this week, get out there and be Kick Aspirational. Mm